How good is this? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, I would just definitely, definitely. I don't know what happened during the songs, but there's like some dust in my eye. I was getting a little misty, just for a little, a little bit. It's not normal for me. It was like I was, Jan Lee was talking about emotions and feelings. I don't know what was happening, but uh, it is so good to be here together as one. This is beautiful. As Janelyn mentioned, we are in the midst of the Lenten season, and we are excited as Easter approaches. And uh, throughout this season, we've been focusing on spiritual practices as a church. And if you're new to Lakeview, this has actually become something we've been leaning into more and more in the past few years. And in this Lenten season, we've been trying to embrace practices of detachment. These practices, they help clear some space in our life in order to help reorient ourselves towards God, to become more attached to Jesus. And so on our website, there's a, there's a section where you can find the different videos and resources on practices like fasting and silence and solitude. And this week's video is about submission. One way we learn submission is by living within the boundaries that our lives bring us and learning to live well in the midst of unresolved circumstances. So how can we live with tension? How do we live in times when answers are elusive and the future feels a little bit unclear? Well, we, we learn what it means to submit ourselves, to care for those who are around us, to learn to be present to the people in our space and humbly receive our calling to love those who are before us. So I encourage you this week to spend some time exploring those practices and this week to explore the practice of submission. Many of you know that for the past few months, we've been in a teaching series called Retell, passing on unique stories of Luke from the life of Jesus. And we have been paying special attention to the unique aspects of Luke's gospel, the things that are, are not highlighted in Matthew, Mark, and John. And what we've been discovering is that Luke wants us to see how Jesus offers love and acceptance and salvation and healing to all people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, powerful and weak. We've also been finding that Jesus is going about this mission of extending God's kingdom in unexpected ways. Jesus keeps on hanging out with the wrong kind of characters, and he keeps on irritating the crowds and the religious leaders. And also in recent weeks, we have been noticing that Jesus is beginning his journey to Jerusalem, the, the city where the temple is located, the, the epicenter of the Jewish faith. And Jesus has been making it clear that this journey to Jerusalem is going to be a collision. He's going to amp up his message, calling the people of Israel to repent, to turn around, to turn back to God by receiving Jesus as their king. But Jesus has been clear that he knows how things are going to play out in Jerusalem. Ultimately, the people will, re will reject Jesus, and they're going to kill him. And so while we've been tracing the very personal encounters that various people have with Jesus, we are reminded that there's a broader story unfolding as well. And so for those of you who are fans of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you can kind of imagine the journey to Mordor. 
You know, amidst the battles and adventures, twists and turns, the ultimate mission looms over the fellowship. And for Jesus and his disciples, Jerusalem hangs in the horizon, an ominous reminder of the ultimate showdown that is to come, where Jesus will be arrested, he'll be insulted, he'll be spit on, he'll be beaten, and ultimately he will be killed, but he will rise again. And Jesus knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem, and and we know too. We are in the midst of that season. That's what Lent is about. We are anticipating the time. It's coming, and we know that on this journey to Jerusalem, it is a journey to the cross, but we're not there yet. Luke has one last story, and this story combines many of the themes that we have been tracing throughout Luke's gospel. This is going to be a story of an outsider, a story of Jesus at a table, a story of Jesus keeping bad company, a story of muttering crowds, a story of the rich coming face to face with Jesus, a story of faith, salvation, and healing. So Luke 19 starts this way. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and he could not see over the crowd, he ran. So, so, but because he was short, he could not see the crowd. My apologies. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So here we meet Zacchaeus another tax collector, but he's, he's a chief tax collector. And there's a few things that we're told, a few basic details about Zacchaeus. He's got a powerful job, he's rich, and he's short. Sounds like Mark Zuckerberg, if I'm honest. <laughs> you know, like dude is the CEO of Facebook or Meta, whatever this thing is. Uh, if you haven't heard, he's rich, and he's only 5'7". Um, and I'm not saying that as like a slight or anything. It's just a reality. He's just, he's just not very tall, right? You put him next to Shaq and you kind of get the idea. Powerful, rich, short, Zuckerberg and Zacchaeus. But again, Zacchaeus isn't the CEO of a digital company. He's a tax collector. And throughout Luke's gospel, we've already encountered tax collectors. And hopefully by now we can kind of recognize that tax collectors, they were not well-liked. They were frontline enforcers of the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from the people, and they're also known for skimming their own fair share off the top. So, you know, tax collectors, they're not popular people. But you'll also notice that Luke doesn't add any commentary or or seem to cast any judgment about the fact that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he doesn't say anything to suggest that it's a problem that he's rich. Luke just introduces this guy, who has a powerful job, who's rich, and who's not very tall. 
Some of us in the room can probably relate. I've seen some of you, you're not very tall, that's okay. Anybody out there with a powerful job? How about a show of hands? Let's see who the rich people are. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, the rich people. It's funny, right, though? Rich, we talk about this, but we also like to, we don't like to talk about this. Because when we talk about rich, it's always like rich compared to what? Rich compared to who? In my experience, we tend to kind of categorize rich people as the people beyond ourselves, right? We, we often make ourselves the reference point. Most of us live in Saskatoon, so it probably helps to have some perspective with the other people who are living in Saskatoon. In Saskatoon, the median annual income for an individual before taxes is about $40,000 or $80,000 for a household. So if you're at that marker, you're like right in the middle of like the population of Saskatoon. What does that mean? Is that the dividing line between rich and not rich? Right, like none of us are Mark Zuckerberg rich, but are we Saskatoon rich? And I can sense some of us are getting a little bit uncomfortable. We're like, I don't like this idea of like naming and identifying the wealthy among us. And some of you are probably extra uncomfortable with even being considered or seen among the wealthy. But like, why is that? There's nothing morally wrong with being rich, right? But it gets awkward when we start talking about money, doesn't it? Especially in church. You see, on, on one hand, we, we really like to act like our finances are this totally private matter, this like part of our lives that's just nobody else's business. Except in church, we also say things like, we are part of God's family together. We are a part of the body of Christ together. And we read about the early Christians like pooling their resources together and making sure that one another's financial needs were taken care of. So it's like a little bit odd that we have this sense of secrecy around our finances. And it's also odd, if we're honest, that we play this game of like, let's pretend we don't know how much money everybody else has, when like, we kinda know, right? Like in broad strokes, like we kind of know the financial situation of other people around us. We know the clues, the job you have, the car you drive, the home you live in. How, how did the people know Zacchaeus was rich? Did they have access to his T4? Of course not. He's a chief tax collector. They're wealthy. He gets paid well. He probably lives in some nice home like overlooking the downtown community from like a gated community, right? Like the fact that he was rich, it was not a secret. And the fact that many of us are rich is not a secret either. Maybe you don't feel rich and, and, and maybe you aren't rich. I, I know the story of many in our community and I know that not all of us are financially secure but for many of us, we don't feel rich here in this crowd, or we don't feel rich on our block in our neighborhood. But imagine if you ventured to other parts of Saskatoon where you don't normally hang out. Or even better, imagine if some of the folks 
from those areas of Saskatoon where you don't hang out. Imagine if those people came and spent a week with you and just saw what life is like for you, where you live, the kind of daily luxuries that you enjoy. Would you feel rich then? And would it make you feel uncomfortable if others in our city perceived you as rich? Would it make you feel uncomfortable if others in our church perceived you as rich? And if so, why? On one hand, being rich, it's just an objective reality. Some people are tall, some people are short. Some people have lots of money, some people have less. Having access to money is not inherently bad. But being wealthy does bring extra responsibility, at least for followers of Jesus. You see, our world tells us that what's mine is mine, and nobody gets to tell me what to do with my money. But for followers of Jesus, we believe that all we have belongs to God. And we understand that our role in this world is to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us with. And that responsibility, it applies to all of us, no matter what size your bank account is. But this does mean that the more money we have means the more of God's resources that we are responsible to manage. It means that we have more of a say in how those resources are used and how they're distributed. We're all responsible for what we have to make use of it for the sake of God's purposes in this world. And I think it's safe to say that as our financial resources expand, so too does our level of responsibility. So, back to Zacchaeus. We don't, we don't know like a lot about his life. We know he's powerful, we know he's rich, and also the fact that when people mutter when Jesus goes to hang out with Zacchaeus, it is a reminder of this man's place in society. You see, again, Jesus keeps on chilling with unpopular people. He's always with the wrong crowd. And throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus spending time with the poor, time with the sick, with people of questionable reputation, but this is different. Are the people muttering because Zacchaeus was like this ostracized guy who was like excluded from community? I don't think so. This guy's a chief tax collector. He's the boss of the tax collectors. He's made his way to the top. He's powerful. He's probably got connections with all kinds of powerful people, and the crowd that's gathering around Jesus, well, they're common people. They're, they're peasants, they're laborers. They're people who were squeezed for taxes that bankrolled Zacchaeus's riches. So yeah, they mutter when Jesus goes to hang out with Zacchaeus because there's a gap between the crowd and Zacchaeus. See, this is another situation of insiders and outsiders like we've seen throughout Luke's gospel. See, there's often a gap between the rich and the poor. And this is one of the problems with financial security, is that it can disconnect us from the world around us. We don't need to depend on others when we are financially secure. 
We can provide for ourselves so we aren't as prone to lean on others, which means we're also a little bit more disconnected from those who might need to lean on us. Because if we're not careful, while some of us enjoy security and stability, and we hang out with other people who enjoy security and stability, we start to lose sight of the reality that it's not that way for everyone. And like Zacchaeus, if we're not careful, our wealth can create a buffer between us and the people in our community who are in need. The people who do not have the same advantages that we have. The people who are not experiencing the same kind of security that we enjoy. And that buffer is dangerous because it's so easy to believe that that's just the way things are in the world. There are haves and there are have-nots. Hopefully life deals you a good set of cards, or hopefully you can manage to find some way to work your way up the ladder. You see, the, the problem with wealth is it's not the fact that someone has a lot of resources. The problem is when wealth and power create a gap between people between ourselves and the people who do not have the kind of wealth and power that we have. And we start to lose sight of the opportunities that we have to leverage our wealth and our influence to bring justice and equity and security for other people. The crowd, they see the gap. They recognize that Zacchaeus is benefiting from a corrupt system that's tilted in his favor. He's contributing to the system of the Roman Empire that's oppressing the common people. And they cannot believe that Jesus would go and spend time with this sinner. Sinner, right? That's what they call him. And they mean that in like a contemptful, condemning way. But we've heard Jesus talk about sinners, but he uses a very different tone. In Luke chapter five, he says, it is not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the crowd named it. Zacchaeus is a sinner. But Jesus, he actually names it another way. He says that Zacchaeus is lost. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Lost, kind of like the lost son we heard about a few weeks ago, or the lost coin, or the lost sheep. It's kind of interesting, right, how Jesus steps away from this crowd to go hang out with Zacchaeus, almost like he's leaving the 99 to go find the one who is lost. And Jesus says this is an important part of the profile. Zacchaeus is powerful. He is rich, he's short, and he's lost. He needs salvation. We've come across many people in Luke's gospel who are lost in their powerlessness. And here we see that Zacchaeus is lost in his power. And Jesus proclaims that he came to bring healing and salvation to the lost people in the world. And that includes those who are financially poor and those who are financially rich. 
It includes those who are physically weak and those who are physically strong. It includes those who have no agency and those who wield power. Either way, when Jesus steps in and he offers salvation to the lost, he often disrupts things. He disrupts the social order. He disrupts the dividing lines between insiders and outsiders. And for Zacchaeus, Jesus disrupts that gap between the rich and the poor. And Jesus disrupts the flow of money. The tilted system where the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting taken advantage of, it needs to stop. And from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told this is exactly what he came to do. Back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus declared the purpose of his mission, of his calling. He went to the synagogue, he opened the Isaiah scroll, and he read that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus, he rolled up that scroll and he declared that today this scripture is fulfilled. Just like he said to Zacchaeus, that today salvation has come. That's the vision of God's kingdom. It's a vision of restoration. It's a vision of justice. It's a vision of peace among people. See, Jesus enters into a world of haves and have-nots, and he declares it's time for the systems that favor the rich and take advantage of the poor to stop. And he goes about balancing the power dynamics by declaring that all are welcome to come to the table. All are welcome to come find their place in God's family. Rich, poor, sick, strong, weak, powerful. The only requirement for access is do you believe you need the healing that Jesus offers? Salvation is offered freely throughout the Gospel of Luke to all kinds of people, but it's the sick who receive the doctor's aid. Jesus came to set things right. So if we believe that all is well in our lives already, then there's no space for Jesus to do his work. But if we are able to see the fractures in our world, the fractures in our society, the fractures in our own hearts, and if we are able to acknowledge that the remedy for our troubles is beyond us, then we are ready to receive Jesus and the salvation that he offers. Zacchaeus came face to face with salvation and he received it. In the story of Zacchaeus, it actually stands in contrast with another story from Luke that was just in the chapter previous. In Luke chapter 18, you can read it on your own time, but Jesus has an encounter with another wealthy, powerful man. This man had put his hope in his own righteousness. He followed all the right rules, he did all the right things, but Jesus doesn't have much to offer people who think they're righteous. 
And when Jesus told him that salvation would impact the flow of his finances, that man went away sad. He wanted the kind of salvation that would make him feel sure that he would go to the good place when he died. He wasn't interested in the kind of salvation that actually disrupted his life. But Jesus offers salvation, yes, that leads to eternal life, but he also offers salvation for right now. He invites us to participate in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus wanted that rich man to learn how to let go of his false sense of security that comes from wealth and instead see his wealth as an incredible opportunity to contribute towards the flourishing of the people around him. Salvation was staring this man in the face. But that powerful rich man went away sad. Zacchaeus, meanwhile, he responds to his encounter with Jesus with generosity. He rises up with energy and enthusiasm. Salvation has come his way and he has embraced it. The outward expression of his salvation reveals that he is now participating in the essence of the kingdom. He's seeking to undo injustice. He's redistributing wealth. He's leveraging his power and wealth to build others up. He's learning to hold his money with a loose grip, ready to release it. He's participating in the broader story around him. He's paying attention to the people who've been wronged, the people who are disadvantaged, and he's removing the gap between himself and the crowd because he's realizing he's not an outsider anymore. He's finding his place at God's table, and he's figuring out that he has something important to contribute. See, the story of Zacchaeus is good news for those of us who are rich. You are welcome. There's a place for you at the table. But don't be surprised when Jesus disrupts the way you hold your money and, and power and influence. God's vision of restoration and justice and equity, it will be carried forward when those of us with power and money are ready to leverage what we have for the sake of the kingdom, for the benefit of others around us. And that requires that we need to close the gap between us and others. We must learn to extend ourselves, to welcome others in, to learn the stories of other people who do not share the same opportunities that we do. And that often means getting out of our neighborhoods, getting out of our social circles, spending time with our local partners like Sons and Daughters and MCC and other amazing agencies in our city and getting to know people from very different walks of life from ourselves. Shane Claiborne says, I've come to see that the great tragedy in the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. I truly believe that when the rich meet the poor, riches will have no meaning. And when the rich meet the poor, we will see poverty come to an end. I think that's a vision of the kingdom. Jesus is bringing us together 
from all kinds of walks of life, and he's making us one. This is the vision of what the church is meant to be, a place where rich and poor, powerful and weak, young and old, short and tall, we come together. We bring our full selves to the table. We bring our strengths and our weaknesses. We bring our wealth and our debt. We bring our powers and our struggles. If you have needs in your life, you are welcome to bring those to this table. If you have wealth and resources, you are also welcome to bring that to the table. We are invited to set what we have before God and trust that we will be taken care of. When we learn to open ourselves up fully to God and fully to one another, we create space for the kingdom to be unleashed in our midst. We create space to experience salvation. So as a church, we have a practice of celebrating communion every month as a tangible reminder that Jesus has indeed invited each of us to his table. The elements of communion remind us that Jesus came into our world. He brought salvation to us. His body was broken and his blood was spilled as the ultimate act of love for the world. And so we take these elements, and if you did not get a communion pod on your way in, you can go ahead and rise up and they are by the entrances. We take these elements as a sign that we receive Jesus. We acknowledge our need for salvation in our lives. We who take communion are those who know our brokenness. We know that we need Jesus, and we have confidence that Jesus loves us and Jesus is at work in our lives. And we also, we take these elements together as a community, as a sign that we are bonded together in God's family. God is forming us into his people. And as Jesus draws us towards himself, he also draws us towards one another. We become aware of the stories around us. We become aware that while we are broken, we all have something to bring to the table. We have a part to play in God's story. And this is what it means to join God in the renewal of all things. So as we take communion, just a few instructions. If you just kind of crack this little tab down, and then you're gonna pop it up. There is a, you pull back the top layer and you'll reveal the wafer, and the second layer will reveal the juice. Um, we're just gonna not take the elements just yet, but I'm gonna invite you to stand, and we're going to participate in a communal prayer together. So I will read uh, the words in black, and together we will all read aloud uh, the bold words in blue. So read with me, please. God of hope, make this bread the means of our rebuilding, this cup the medium of our transformation, this table the foundation of our renewal, and this community the place of our rebirth. We remember Jesus who on the night before he died, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. 
Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant. Remember me. Gracious God, King of peace, source of love, we pray by your spirit, make us one who are many. Make us whole who are divided. Make us healed who are broken. And so we join with the family of the church around the world, declaring the body of Christ, the bread of life the blood of Christ, the cup of blessing. Let us eat and drink together for the strengthening of our faith and for the sake of the world. You can eat and drink. One last reading. We thank you, God, for breaking into our world and pouring hope, peace, joy, and love into our lives. We thank you, God, for this meal of thanksgiving and the story of love, grace, and hope that it tells. Amen. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.